Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads, You were the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. The author and president of the Barna Group, David Kinneman, once wrote, Being salt and light demands two things. We practice purity in the midst of a fallen world, yet we live in proximity to this fallen world. If we don't hold up both, this, both truths in tension, you invariably become useless and separated from the world that God loves. I've probably told this particular story coming up a few times in my life, but it bears repeating. It's the story of Charles Blondin. Um, Charles Blondin is the, is, is the name of a man uh, who I think every Christian should know. He is the, the French uh, acrobat. You see, in the summer of 1859, Charles Blondin walked across a quarter-mile-long tightrope that spanned the breadth of the Niagara Falls. And not only did he do this once, he did it actually multiple times. Over and over again, he walked across the tightrope, which was about 160 feet above the falls. He crossed the tightrope from Canada into the United States and then back again. And he did this as hundreds of people watched in amazement. And he, and he didn't just walk across. He Once he walked across in a sack. Other times he walked across on, on stilts. Another time he went on a bicycle. And then once he even carried a stove and cooked an omelet while he was crossing. On July 15th, Blondin walked across backwards on the tightrope into Canada and then returned pushing a wheelbarrow. And then Blondin crossed the tightrope pushing uh, a wheelbarrow, but this time blindfolded. And those who watched were captivated and they always cheered in amazement because Charles had proven that he had mastered the tightrope and there came this collective sense in, of, of confidence in his abilities. If he decided to cross it whatever particular way he wanted to, everybody just believed that he could do it. It seemed that there was no doubt that he could cross the tightrope in any way that he chose. But then one day he asked the crowd an important question. He says, do you believe I could carry a person across this tightrope in the wheelbarrow? And people, of course, said, yes, we believe that. And then, uh, then he asked, do you really believe that I can do this? And he said, yes. People were like, yes, we believe it. But then he asked the important question. If you believe, you really believe, which one of you will get in the wheelbarrow? Yeah. Of course, no one did, right? Now, what's the point? Well, there's actually two important points to make from this. First, the story of Charles Blondin paints a really a very real-life picture of what faith actually is. The, the crowd had watched his daring feats, and they said they believed, but their action proved that they really didn't fully believe, which is really a picture of the Christian life. 
Simply making a confession of faith, even an emotional one, doesn't make a person a Christian. Yes, confession is part of it, but, but real faith, real belief transforms us and ultimately will manifest itself in our actions, a point that we'll keep in mind as we go along today. Secondly, the thing I want to point out is, is, is something that we really, it's easy for us to overlook in this story. And it's, and it's the idea of tension. Blondin was able to cross the tightrope because of the tension on the rope, right? That's why it's called a tightrope. The tension is created between two opposite forces pulling against each other. You take a rope and you anchor it at one point and then you pull it really, really tight and you anchor it to another point and you put it under tension. And anchoring it, right, to these points and putting it under tension, right, gives the stability that it needs for him to walk across it, right? And this is an important reality in this story, but it's an important overlooked reality when it comes to our faith as well. You see, tension is not only important in tightropes, it's important in how we understand who God is in our relationship to him. In fact, one of the most important points of tension in the Christian life is found in John chapter 1, verse 14. If you remember, John opens up and declares that Jesus, or the Word, is God. And in verse 14, he tells us who the Word is. He said, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father. And notice this, full of grace and truth. Can you see the tension here? Jesus is full of both grace and truth. Jesus upholds the truth of God's word and affirms the demands of the law that we cannot keep. And we're also told that Jesus will be the judge of those who are found wanting. But Jesus also, at the same time, came to do for us all the things that we couldn't do for ourselves. By his grace, he fulfilled the law on our behalf. And then he died to make atonement for our sins. Jesus is full of grace and truth. That's why we teach both the law and the gospel. Jesus forgives, that's his grace, but he also says, go and sin no more. That's truth. There's a tension here, a balance, and we find it throughout the Bible. Right? God, as we said in Romans, is both what? Just and the justifier of those who come to faith in Christ. Jesus is both the lamb that was slain, but the lion of Judah. Jesus came to be a servant to die and save sinners, but he's also the one who's going to come back as the judge and the king of the world. God is a God of grace, but also a God of wrath. Just look at the cross. On the cross, you see the intersection, the tension point of God's love and God's justice. In fact, one of the songs we sing in verse 2 goes like this. Turn your eyes to the hillside where justice and mercy embraced. There the Son of God who gave his life for us and our measureless debt was erased. Tension. Now, what does this have to do then with where we're going today in our series titled All In? What does this have to do with us being on mission for Christ? Well, actually quite a lot, and we'll discover that as we go along today. But before we get right into it, let me just remind you of what we covered so far so you have a context. In this series, we've been talking about the mission of Christ and the part that we as believers are called to play and participate in that mission. 
And in the first week, we established the fact that the mission of Christ is to save sinners. That is why Jesus came into the world. He didn't come so that we could somehow magically have a pain-free, problem-free life. He didn't come so that all of our material desires could be fulfilled in this life. He came to save our greatest problem, and he came to save us from our sins and the wrath of God that abides on those who are in their sins. As one pastor clearly puts it, he says, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need would have been technology, he would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need would have been money, he would have sent us an economist. But since our greatest need was forgive us, God sent us a savior. Jesus came to save sinners, and that is his mission. And what we know from the scripture is all Christians are called to participate in this mission. And all of us are called to the mission of Christ because we have been saved by God for his glory and for his purposes and plans. And God's plan and purpose for you and your redeemed life is to use you in a way that ultimately reaches the people that are around you. We are saved individually to be on mission for Christ. And that's what we covered in week one. And then in week two, we talked about our part in the mission. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus tells us to go, therefore make disciples of all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey what I have commanded you. Our mission is to go out into the world around us. Some may be further than others, but to share the good news of Christ with other people. That is evangelism. And to help them to put their trust in Christ. And we help them then, after they put their faith in Christ, to get plugged into the local church. That's baptism. And then we are to teach them to actively obey and follow Jesus so that they can go out and make more disciples themselves. That is our part. And as we wrapped up last time, we talked about the fact that the Christian life is about being discipled and discipling others. You are either being discipled and being trained up in your faith, or you're making disciples and training others up in their faith. The Christian life is about following Jesus by teaching other people to follow Jesus. And how we, that is how we accomplish this mission. And so we've covered a lot of ground in the last few weeks. We've, we know what the mission of Christ is, which is to save sinners. We know what our part is, which is to make disciples. And we even talked a little bit about how we make disciples through evangelism, baptism, and then and then teaching them to follow Christ. And so with that, I think we have a rough working outline of how we're to live as believers on mission for Christ, but there's still a lot of questions. Like, where is this mission of Christ taking place? Is it my neighborhood? Is it in another city somewhere? Is it in some other country? A lot of people, when they think about being on mission, they immediately think they need to go somewhere else. Right? Where do we go on mission? And how do I get involved in the mission of Christ? What am I supposed to do? Right? I know that I'm supposed to share my faith and, I'm, and, and help people get plugged into the church and help them to learn to follow Christ. But, but what does that look like from a practical day-to-day perspective? I mean, you know, most of you will, will say, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a trained evangelist or even an apologist. How do I live on mission you know, in my normal everyday life? Well, as far as the where question is concerned, the short answer is... Everywhere. The mission is everywhere. We're called to be a part of the mission both locally and globally. Our job is, as followers of Christ is to make disciples everywhere. And that's a really, really big conversation for us to have, but we're not going to tackle that one today. 
Instead, I'm going to talk about something more fundamental to our being on mission for Christ. And that is who we are in this mission. And I don't just mean who we are individually as people, but I mean more importantly, more foundationally, who we are in Christ. Because who we are, or, or better, what we are in Christ, will ultimately shape how we understand this mission and how we do our part to accomplish this mission. Right? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. And, and before we get too far in the text, let me just kind of give you the context of the scripture, because the context is really going to help us to, to understand where, where Jesus is going. The first thing we need to get clear about is the overarching context and theme of the gospel of Matthew, right? And what we know about Matthew is that he wrote this gospel to make it clear that Jesus is the Messiah and the reigning king. That was Matthew's purpose. He wanted to make it clear that he's the king that everyone's looking for. And this is important because foundationally, it helps us to understand what Jesus is doing, especially in chapter 5. In chapter 5, Jesus begins to deliver the famous Sermon on the Mount. It's a sermon that we have all heard about and many of us know a lot about. And this sermon, Jesus lays out for his followers what kingdom life is to be like for those who trust in Christ. And the Sermon on the Mount is basically Jesus the King making his royal proclamation about how his people are to live in the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, but how they're to live also here and now in that kingdom. And this sermon opens up, if you'll remember, in a section that people call the Beatitudes, which is part of the scripture that, that, that most people, especially Christians, are really familiar with. Because in this text, Jesus makes several important and memorable statements that all begin with the phrase, blessed are. By the way, this is such a famous you know, section that even in the movie, uh, The Godfather, you know, uh, one of the, the characters said, blessed is the peacemaker, right? But it says, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against against you falsely on my account. And he says, after telling you you that you're blessed for all that bad stuff happening, he says, rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, so for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's how Jesus opens up the most famous sermon in the Bible, right? And, and what we realize from the very beginning, Jesus is telling us that life in the kingdom of heaven is to be radically different than life in the rest of the world. For those who follow Christ, life is radically different. I mean, think about it. Jesus says blessed or happy or extremely fortunate or or in an enviable position are those who are persecuted. That's not normally how we would think about that. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn or poor in spirit. This is a different perspective than the rest of the world. Life in the kingdom is radically different. And that's the point that Jesus is making throughout his entire sermon. In In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us not just to love our neighbor, but to go another step further and to Love our enemies. If that's something 
that if that's something that's different from the world, there's nothing that could be more different, right? The world doesn't tell us to love our enemies. Jesus said adultery isn't just limited to cheating on your spouse, but it's also lusting after other people. Again, the world would tell you that is not at all how it is. It's completely different than the world. Jesus said, if someone hurts you, don't retaliate. That's not what the world teaches us, right? And he says, don't focus your attention on your financial security here on earth, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Again, a message that's completely at odds with what the world is telling us. And it's a picture of a radically different life. And and that is the context of the scriptures that we're going to look at. We We need to look at this text with the understanding that Jesus is calling us, his followers, to live radically different lives than the rest of the world. And so with that in mind, let's look at Matthew 5, beginning in verse 13. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, as always, with this text, there's a lot here. In fact, in this part of the Sermon on the Mount, we could actually do an entire sermon series for itself, you know, by itself. But today, in the interest of time, there are two important statements and and two things I really want to focus and draw your attention to. And they are verse 13, where Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. And then in verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. Now, if you're like me, you've read this many times and you've thought, cool. Jesus says that we're to be salt and light. We are to go out and be salt and light. But I want you to notice, like, it doesn't say that. What Jesus is saying is something more foundational than that. And again, I want you to hear the wording. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You see, the problem is, is when we look at texts like this, I know for me, it's easy to get caught up in all the questions and the details and ask things like, well, what does Jesus mean when he says salt? What's that about, right? What does it mean, city on the hill? What does it mean, earth and world? And understand, those are important questions when you go into Bible study because because they are important details. But we can spend so much time thinking about those things that we overlook the obvious truth that's staring us in the face, the obvious foundation to this text. And the reason why I know this to be true is because many pastors, including this one, has done just that. And because of that, because we miss what's right in front of us, this text ends up being interpreted as an exhortation for us to go out and get busy into the world and do stuff. You hear pastors all the time say, you're the salt of the earth, so you need to go out there and be salty. Well, at least be salt, right? Because what does salt do? Salt enhances, right? It preserves. So go out there, right? Into the world and get busy flavoring the world. Get busy Preserving the world. That's the admonition that many preachers, including this one, have preached before. You are the light of the world, so shine, right? Get busy doing good deeds so that people can see them. Shine that thousand watt candle, you know, in their face. Go out in the world and spotlight Jesus so that they can glorify God. That's the message that invariably gets, this gets turned into. And it gets turned into a list of things for us to do. 
That's the direction we tend to go with this text. But understand, and I want you to understand, it's not all bad. Okay, I, I want you to hear me. Because there is truth behind this. Because ultimately, we do need to get into the wheelbarrow. We need to get in the wheelbarrow and actually put our faith into action. We do need to be a preserving influence. And we need to shine the light of Christ in our action. Because our faith isn't really just, isn't demonstrated by what we say, but rather how we live and how we treat other people. As Jesus says, you will know them by their fruit. And so we can see how we tend to naturally use this text to exhort people to go out in the world and do stuff and be salt and light in the world. But the problem is this application doesn't give us the foundation that we need to live from. Because the foundational truth is right here in the text. Notice Jesus said, he doesn't say go out and be the salt of the earth. Or go out and be the light of the world. He says, you are present tense, the salt of the earth. You are present tense in this moment, the light of the world. Don't miss this truth. This is not an exhortation for you to do something. This is a revelation. This is a revelation that if you belong to Christ, you are something. You see, it's not about doing. It's about being. It's not about what you do. It's about who you are and what you are in Christ. And this is so important for us to understand because this is the place where we can lose sight of the gospel. This is the place where we can make the Christian faith about something that it's not. You see, when you put your faith in Christ, it's not that you did something. It's not about what you did for God. What does Paul say? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not the result of works so that no one may boast. You didn't do anything for God. You became something by faith in him. Then he says, for, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are God's workmanship, something that he did. He created us and then recreated us in Christ. We didn't do anything because we, we became something by the grace of God. And, and what we need to understand is this becoming something, this being created in Christ is a radical transformation, a supernatural transformation in who we are. It's a fundamental change in who and what you are. That's why Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's a radical statement he's making. Because being born physically the first time was a radical transformation. If you don't believe me, ask your mom. And being born again spiritually is even more radical than that. Because we are spiritually, as Paul says, dead. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. But God, the Holy Spirit, supernaturally brings us to life. It's a radical transformation in our very nature. That's why Paul says, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you're in Christ... You have been radically transformed in who and what you are. And that is why you can live the radically transformed life that Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount. Kingdom life is radically different than the rest of the world. And the reason why you can live that way is because you've been radically altered and changed 
by God into something new. And so Jesus, that's what he's talking about. It's not what you do. It's who you are. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. In Christ, if you're in Christ, you are those things. You don't become those things. You are those things. And there's even more to that than, than this. Because Jesus didn't say that you are a grain of salt on the earth. He didn't say you're one light in the world. He said you are the salt and the light. And this is an important truth for us to wrap our heads around. Right? We are not an imitation of something. We, we are that something. If you were new in Christ, you have a new nature. You're something altogether new. And I don't want to overstate this right here, right? But being, in, being a Christian is about being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. This is what, what we are all moving toward. That's what the Holy Spirit is working in us. We are being made more and more and more in the image of Christ. When you came to faith in Christ, Jesus himself comes to live inside of you. And when that happens, your life begins to be a living image of Christ. Your life becomes a real living image of God's transformational power in you. Your life becomes a living picture of his grace and love and mercy for the world around you. Your radically transformed life is a representation to the world around you of the hope. The hope that is in Christ. Because if somebody can see Christ in the likes of me, then they can see him in anyone, because I know how bad this sinner is. When you share the love of Christ, when you show compassion and mercy, when you proclaim the word of God and declare the gospel, the people around you are not just encountering you. They're encountering the living God through you. The God that sent you on this mission. The God in whom you represent, the God in whose image you have been made, and the God for whose purposes you have been redeemed. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. When you go out into the world, people are to encounter God's preserving influence through you. That is what you were saved for, that people would encounter the living God through your life and your words and your actions and your attitudes. This is the truth that should make us all very humble. These are words that ought to drive us all to our knees in prayer. Because it, if you belong to Christ, you are a living, breathing image of him. You are his ambassador. As, what does Paul say? Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. You are his ambassador. And how you live and what you say and do either adds to or detracts from how other people see Christ. Because you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. But even then, there's still more. I want you to notice the words earth and world. You are the salt of the earth. Not just part of it, but the, all of it. You are the light of the world. Not just some of the world, but all of it. You see, your calling and your mission and your transformed life has universal and global implications. 
Most of us don't like to think in those terms, but it does. You're not simply to be a light that shines the hope of Christ for a few people. You're to be that for all the people that you come in contact with. Which is convicting for me. Because sometimes I come in contact with people and they don't really see much of that light. You're not to just be a preserving influence with the people that you like the most. You're to be that for all people that you come in contact with. Even the ones that really kind of get under your skin. Every person in your life, every person you work with, every person you hang out with, every person you go to school with, every person you meet at the store, every person you bump into at a football game, every person that you encounter when you go to town shopping, every person you connect with on the phone or on social media, every friend, every relative, every neighbor, every stranger, every enemy, you are the light and you are the salt for them. Every single interaction in your life, I want you to hear me. Every single interaction in your life is an opportunity for someone to encounter Christ through you. If that's not a truth that would drive you to prayer, I don't know what would. Every single interaction in your life is an opportunity for someone to encounter Christ through you. Right? Including the difficult conversations between you and your boss. Or... When a person cuts you off in traffic. Or when that lady accidentally runs into the back of your heels with a shopping cart in Walmart. Right? Or when your neighbor or family members just show up unannounced and they want to sit and, and talk. And you're just like, I just want to be by myself for a few minutes. You are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. It's who you are. Right? If you're in Christ. It's who you are if you're in Christ. It's not what you are becoming. It's who you are. Now, I know that's a lot to take in, right? I know that's a huge responsibility, right? And, and there's a lot here. And, and I don't want to lose you in the weeds, and I don't want to overstate what the, the text is saying, but, but you and I need to understand that in these verses, Jesus is making a radical statement not about what you do, but the very nature of who you are. He's making a radical statement about who you are and what you are in relationship then with the rest of the world. He's saying if you're in Christ, if you're part of the kingdom of God, then you by definition are radically different than the rest of the world. That is the thrust of what he's saying. You are radically different. And that means you are not the world. Because the world is what? The world is dark. And you, because of Christ in you, are the light of the world. Because of the transforming power of Christ, you are the opposite of the world. Right? You're not the earth. The earth is decaying. It is rotting away. But you are not. You are being renewed. Right? Which means you're the salt of the, the earth. You are the preserving influence that God has placed in the earth. You're the preserving influence for your neighbors and your friends around you. Because of Christ in you, you have the ability to be a preserving influence in your community. We all want to sit around and gripe and complain about what's going on and what's going wrong in our community. You were placed in this community to be a preserving influence in this community. You're to be a preserving influence in your home and in your family and the lives that you come in contact with. If you belong to Jesus, 
because of the changes he has, that has happened to you spiritually and supernaturally. If you're a Christian, then you, by your very nature, are radically different than the rest of the world. And it is that difference in you that makes you who you and what you need to be in order to be on mission for Christ. You already are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And these are two metaphors that help us to see that, that we are not only called to be radically different, but we are, we are radically different in our very nature. And in these two metaphors, we will not only see who we are in Christ, but also how we are supposed to relate to the rest of the world while we are on mission for Christ. This now becomes a point of tension because I want you to hear the rest of what Jesus is saying here. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how is that saltiness restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown under, thrown out and trampled under feet. If salt is worth, if salt loses its saltiness, it's worthless. If salt doesn't do what it's supposed to do, it's worthless. Verse 14, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So on the one hand, Jesus tells us who we are in him, but then on the other hand, he tells us who we are has practical, real-world implications for how we live that because we are salt and light then our lives should reflect the fact that we are salt and light in other words we are who are in christ then we should be living and acting as those who are in christ acting as preserving influences in the world around us which means how you live and how you act still matters we're preserving influence, and we are to let our light shine. And the way that we do that, the way we let our light shine, is how? By doing good works. As Paul, if you remember, in Ephesians chapter 2, everybody loves verses 8 and 9, but they kind of leave off verse 10. He says, you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It is part of God's plan for us to do these things. It's part of God's will for us to do good works. It is part of his design that we would glorify him through the things that we do. But, you, but wait a minute, Pastor. You, didn't you just say it's not about what we do? It's about who you are, right? And that is true. That is true. But ultimately, who you are will always manifest itself in what you do. That's the inescapable truth. If you are the salt of the earth, as Jesus says, then you will live and act in a way that enhances the lives of others and preserves what is good. If you're really the light of the world, as Jesus says, then you will live and act in a way that will shine forth the light of Christ for all to see. You will bear fruit in accordance to who you are. Because who you are always affects what you do. Who you are always affects what you do. Who you are determines how you will live and act. Who you are shows up in your actions and your attitudes and how you treat people. Now here's the point where we begin to have a tr little bit of trouble with this. This is the point that will challenge us. I know it does me. Because all of us will begin to look at this in our lives and we'll be, if we're honest with ourselves, we will say that we don't always 
We don't always act like a preserving influence in the world around us. In fact, sometimes we can contribute to the decay, right? right? And we don't always shine the light of hope in the world around us. Sometimes we are just downright ornery. Sometimes we can be downright dark. And so what, is it, what does this say about us then? Right? If, if who we are determines what we do, and if we don't always see this in us, then what does it say about us? Well, there's actually two possibilities. I don't want you to hear me all the way to the end. There are two possibilities. The first possible answer may be that you really have not met Christ and you're not a believer. And I know this is something that people don't want to hear, but it, but it might be the truth. Yes, a person is saved by grace alone through faith alone. But if, if all your Christian life is simply a profession of faith, where you just simply say, I believe, but you don't actually get in the wheelbarrow, then you might not really actually know Christ. If there is no desire in you to repent of sin, if there is nothing in you that urges you on towards living for holiness, if there's nothing in you that pushes you to shine the light of Christ for those around you to see, then you might not have actually really understood the gospel and believed Christ. You might not actually believe what you thought you believed. And I know that could be hard to hear. I want you to know that's really hard for me to say. But it is my job to always speak the truth in love. And I love you too much not to tell you the truth. And the truth is faith, as James says, without works is dead. Our works are not the root of our salvation, but they are certainly the fruit of it. Now, we, again, are not saved by our works, what we do, but what we do bears witness to the authenticity of our faith. True faith in Christ will always bear fruit in our lives somewhere. If there is no fruit, then there may not be faith. Jesus said, you are present tense, the salt, salt and light. And if your life doesn't show any signs of that, then you need to take a long, hard look in the mirror and just ask yourself, do I really know Christ? Do I really understand the gospel? As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? The truth is, if you're a believer, then Christ is in you. And if Christ is in you, then your life will change and your life will, be, will bear fruit. And I will say, if you're someone who's like coming to terms with the fact, maybe I really didn't know who Christ is. Maybe I actually haven't understood the gospel. Then today's the day of salvation. Come talk to me. Come talk to, you know, Hugh, Matt, you know, any number of people in, our, in, in this church. We will help you walk through how to have a relationship with Christ. Right? But the second possible answer, and I think is probably more likely for most of us, the second possible answer why these things don't always show up in our lives is because we're still growing, right? Because you're not there yet. You see, in this life, we live in this tension. This tension between already and not yet, as we talked about in Romans, right? The, the Christian life, this side of heaven, is both already but not yet you put your trust in christ and you are saved in heaven is your reward but you're not in heaven yet you live here in a fallen broken world filled full of fallen broken people if you're a believer in christ you are a new creation but the old part of you is still clinging to life if you if christ is in you you live by the spirit but the flesh still tries to exhort its exert its influence over you 
If you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch, right? You may be saved from the penalty of your sin, but you have not been saved from the presence and the effects of sin. You may have been given power over sin, as we talked about in Romans chapter 6, but sin and temptation still fight back and at times overpower us. The truth is, when you were saved, you were not automatically made perfect. That's the one thing I really wish would have been different, right? But I realize God has a plan and a purpose for what he does. But when you were saved, you were not instantly made perfect. And so because of that, you were still growing. This is the process of sanctification, where God, the Holy Spirit, is working inside of you, inside of you, changing you from the inside out, making you more and more the image of Christ in a process that's taking time, a process that's not completed until we go home to be with the Lord. And so you may have been saved and radically transformed into salt and light, but you might not always act like it, especially when you're grumpy. Because you're still growing. But understand, you were still called to be on mission for Christ. You were called to make disciples. And as such, you're called, we're called to live as if we have been redeemed as salt and light in the world. You're called to live radically transformed lives because we have been transformed by Christ himself. Now, when you, when you don't see that in your lives, or we don't consistently see that in our lives, the tendency for us to look at this text and say, Okay, pastor, let me write my list down. Right, I need to get busy being salt and light. I need to start doing this. I need to start doing that. I need to try harder. I, need to, I just need to be nicer. I need to be more loving, right? I need to just fill in the blank. You can make the list as long as you want to, but I want you to hear me. That is not the answer. It's actually not the solution to the problem. What we... When, when you don't see in your life the fruit of who Jesus says you are, the answer is not try harder. The answer is not do more. The answer always is draw nearer to Christ. That's always the answer. The answer is always the gospel. Whether you're an unbeliever or you're still growing, the answer is always, 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 and if I didn't emphasize it enough, it's always the gospel. The answer is to take all of your hope and all of your trust and take it off of you and what you can do and place it all, all on Jesus. It's to get completely into the wheelbarrow and let him be in control. The answer is the gospel. The answer is, hey man, you, need to, you just need to try harder and do more stuff. The answer is never, hey, you need to follow more rules. The answer is we need to follow Jesus, right? And if we're going to follow him, then we need to be close to him. Which, by the way, if you're going to be a disciple and help train other people, then you need to teach them just that. Your job is to teach them to be, your, your job is not to teach them how to be salt and light. Your job is to teach them to trust in Christ. And when they fall down, you teach them to trust in Christ. And when they make a mess of things, you teach them to trust in Christ. Because it's not what you do. It's who you are in Christ that matters. Let me say that again. It's not what you do. It's who you are in Christ that matters. But what you do 
does reveal who you are. And that's the tension point. You are called to be salt and light. Right? The question you ask yourself, is that how you live? Is this who you, who you are? Is there something in you driving you to be a preserving influence in the world? Is there something driving in you to shine the light of Christ for others to see? Now, in light of this, what, what do we do then with this? Like, okay, pastor, you done messed up my whole Sunday. What are we going to do now? Well, my encouragement to you and exhortation for you in a message like this is not simply to walk out of here thinking, man, that's a pretty good sermon. What's for lunch? And then forget about, you know, what we're talking about here today. Rather, what I'm going to do is encourage you to take time this week and reflect on this. Examine your hearts. Examine who you are. Draw up close to the Lord in prayer and in his word. And we need to ask some important questions. Did I really, truly get in the wheelbarrow? Does my life begin beginning to look different than what it was? And I want you to know, like, day three after I came to faith in Christ, maybe not so much. Three years in, definitely, right? Now, I can't even recognize the guy I used to be, right? Examine who you are. And we need to ask some important questions again, right? It's, it's healthy for us to ask those questions. Did I really believe, right? Did I get in the wheelbarrow? And if you're in the wheelbarrow, if you're trusting Christ, are you living then in a way that's a preserving influence in the, in the world around you, right? Are there areas in your lives where you can be, where you were really challenged with that. I'm going to tell you, like, the place that uh, the Lord is still sanctifying me is in my interactions with people on the phone who I don't really want to talk to, whether it's the telemarketer, right, or the technical support person who I'm trying to communicate with who just, for some reason, is not understanding me or not listening to me, and I'm really trying to be patient, but my patience level is really, really short for some reason with people. You, know, you see what I'm saying, right? Where, are there areas in your life where you interact with people where you go, man, I'm just, what is, why am I so prickly? Why can't I just shine the light of Christ instead of being a jerk? Are you ministering to the people around you in their pain, in their suffering? As Christians, it's really easy for us to go, I'll pray for you, and then off we go. But are we taking the time to sit down and just listen and love, right? Are we just going to just shoot a bunch of like scriptures at them and then out the door we go? Or just, are we just there just to sit in quiet and just let them cry? Right? Are we ministering to the world around us? And are we standing up for the truth? I'm going to tell you, this is the one that's getting harder and harder and harder all the time. Are we standing up for the truth of the gospel? Because it's really easy to go along to get along, right? And the truth is, is there's a lot of people that say stuff that sounds really spiritual that isn't true. And it's easy just to go, I just don't want to, I just, I just don't want to touch that. I'm just, you know, but are we standing up for the truth where we, where it needs to be stood up for? And then are we meeting the needs of those around us? There's a lot of needs, right? And we're reminded over and over in the scriptures to meet the needs of the widows and the orphans and, you know, the poor and the powerless, as we sang this morning. Can your actions be described as salt and light? Now, the thing is, I can't answer these questions for you, right? And, and I want you to understand, as your pastor, I have no opinion of that for you, right? What I want you to understand is, as, as your pastor, my job is to preach the word to you, to love you, to encourage you, and to help you the best way possible. My, my job is not sitting to make a list for you saying, you just need to do this, this. That's not my job. 
Right? My job is to point you back to the source. Only you can answer the question. And so the thing this week I would ask you to do is just get alone with God and ask him to reveal to you where you're not living up to what he's created you to be. And then draw near to him in, in prayer and in his word and devotion and in fellowship. And then just ask him the most important question, right? Lord, will you just change my heart about this? Ask him to strengthen you and that he would grow you. And I promise you, over time, you will see that he will be faithful to that. And then just walk in faith that he will honor your prayers and that he will show you where you need to grow. Now, guess what? You might be confronted with where you need to grow and it might not be so painless, but you can still trust him nonetheless because you are the salt of the earth and you're the light of the world. So let us then together live that way as his church, as we live on mission for Christ. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.